I think the universe is getting me back for my earlier comments. I uh, have a piece of meat in my teeth that I'm dying just to take out with a bit of floss. You know, so just wow, one of those things. We're sitting at a table and uh, I, I didn't get a name, but she kind of rolled her eyes when we started sort of throwing some more medical advice. Uh, and I, I promised I wouldn't do it again. But there was one more piece of advice that I think you guys do need to know when it comes to lunch. It's a question I get asked often, and that's about red wine. You know, is red wine good for you or not? Have you guys ever wondered that? No one. Okay, well, let's move on then. Uh, so here's the answer. And again, what you've heard today is all science. Uh, and, and there's studies to back everything, both from my side and from the speaker's side, of course. But here's the answer to is red wine good for you or not? The answer is it depends. Okay. It depends on your age. If you are 40 or younger, the risks of red wine outweigh the benefits. If you're 40 or older, the benefits outweigh the risks. How cool is that, huh? And I've got a young audience because there's only two people going <laughs> fist pumping, which is... But there's physics for you, man. Physics saved lives. In fact, that's uh, in, in introducing our next speaker. I um, was in second year med school and battling through physics. and don't quite have the uh, mental intellect that you guys have. And uh, a fellow student stood up in, in the middle of this physics lecture and said, I'm sorry, professor, but why do we as doctors have to study physics? And this professor, a little bit irked, said, simply said, because physics saves lives. And he carried on. A minute later, the same student stands up and says, I'm sorry, Professor, but how does physics save lives? And I'll never forget his answer. He said, physics saves lives because it keeps idiots like you out of med school. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So we have a professor like that in our midst. Uh, you know, uh, he's an associate professor in finance at uh, USB, the University of Stellenbosch, uh, their business school. He is, also has a PhD in corporate finance from the U University of Cambridge's Judge Business School. He's been published widely. Uh, fascinating discussion today on uh, the optimal diversification. What impressed me most about him is that in a few days' time, he's going on a week-long trail run through the trans sky. Won't you please give a big round of applause to Professor Evan. Hi, good afternoon, everybody, and uh, welcome to the Graveyard Shift. Hildegard, I don't know what I did wrong, but uh, thank you. Uh, for the opportunity, but actually um, the, title, the title of the talk doesn't really do it, do it justice. Um, the real title of the talk should be, Can You Have Too Much of a Free Lunch? I mean, you've all just had lunch, and uh, in investments, a free lunch is diversification. It's always said it's the one free lunch in investments. You can improve your risk-adjusted performance by spreading your risks more widely. Now, I came across this problem in the context of my life at Momentum Investments. I'm wearing two hats. I've uh, always tried to balance out uh, having a good life, in other words, being an academic, with having enough money to pay for my children's school fees, which means working at Momentum Investments. So currently, I'm literally doing both, so I'm part-time at both. And uh, anyway, but this project is, or this topic is an excellent example of the, the synergies of that arrangement. Um, while I was at Momentum Investments full-time, one of my uh, fellow portfolio managers was developing a new smart beta product. And uh, we were reviewing it, and uh, as part of the research team, we had to give some feedback as to the design of it. And when the question came up as to uh, what the correct weights should be to the shares inside this, the systematic process, because for hopefully most of you know a smart beta product is a sort of a systematic design of an investment process. You've got a series of criteria that you apply to your universe of stocks, and you rank your shares on that basis and construct a portfolio on the basis of those shares and rebalance it sort of systematically. 
Okay, so it's quite important that you've got the right rules because you kind of live with those through the life of the product. And um, the question came up as to what should the diversification strategy of, the, uh, of the, uh, this particular portfolio be? And the manager proposed an equally weighted strategy where you simply took whatever shares were ranked and identified as for inclusion in your particular portfolio, uh, you know, just allocate the weightings equally. And I was like, that seems a little bit naive, you know, because there's a whole lot of other investment uh, or diversification strategies out there, and some of them are really sexy, and, you know, being an academic, it's your job is to try to make stuff more complicated. And uh, anyway, he looked at me and he said, no, no, but um, not, not going to work. So we went ahead, but it wasn't sort of an itch that I had to scratch, and luckily I was able to, to find a uh, very bright UCT actuarial science student called Rowan Douglas. And he looked at this project for um, his honours thesis, and we developed it further into the paper that you're seeing now. And we've actually submitted this to the Investment Analyst Journal for, uh, uh, for publication. And um, what, what we're trying to do is answer this question. Is equally weighted a good or a bad basis for developing a systematic investment strategy? Now, systematic investment strategy is just a sort of specific example of the bigger problem, which is how should you diversify your portfolios? And um, it's a really nice application, though, because it answers a couple of questions from a research perspective. Because when you're designing a portfolio, you've got to have some sort of investment thesis. You've got to have some idea that this is a good share and this is not, or this is a good asset class and that is not. And there are a range of them that are out there. And um, value, momentum, size, these are the traditional kind of factors or risk premia that, uh, that you, you look to. But that's, while that's necessary, it's not really sufficient in its own. You've still got to decide then how to allocate your capital to the shares that you've identified for your portfolio. So that's where the diversification sits in. And then there's a third dimension, which is the question of rebalancing. How often should you rebalance and um, you know, how does that impact given the costs associated with rebalancing? And uh, so that question, the first two questions in this particular paper are going to be sort of ignored. We're going to take the investment thesis as it is. We're going to look at various versions of it. We're going to look at value, momentum, size, and low historical volatility. And uh, there are others. We just didn't have the data to do the full range of these, these factors. But four is enough just to test this idea and also to check whether or not the answers vary by factor. So it might be that diversification matters more in some factors than others. So that was one of the, uh, the questions we'd like to try and answer. So what we, we, we did then is look at a range for all of these different investment theses. We looked at a range of different portfolio construction methodologies or diversification strategies, including and starting with um, uh, equally weighted. But to evaluate whether something is good or bad or whether it adds, we need to have a reference point. You need to have a benchmark. And so what we've done is use the market cap weighted portfolio as the benchmark for all of this analysis. So what you're going to see here is the result of what would a value portfolio look like from a return and a risk perspective if you equally weighted it, if you market cap weighted, or if you equally weighted it, or if you used any of the three other diversification strategies that we looked at, which are more sophisticated, or looking at maximizing the diversification in different ways. How did they do? Relative to your benchmark, which in this case is your market cap. Now, market cap's a good benchmark. It's a very common benchmark. A lot of the indices, uh, a lot of the passive products that you buy are invested or provide access to that. So, um, so what we did was really say, well, does it matter? You know, does it really matter if you increase the level of diversification across the portfolios? And um, the question is, well, how will you evaluate whether it matters or not? And that comes to the question of performance. Now, the whole point of diversification is that it reduces your risk associated with that particular portfolio. 
are betting on many horses, it doesn't really matter whether the one that you pick first wins or not because you've got other bets on other horses in the race. So, um, but uh, if you spread your risks too widely, potentially you could, what they call diversification or get the, the, the negative impacts of overly diversification. So that was the question, one of the questions we wanted to ask is that, is there any relationship between the level of diversification in, in these uh, different portfolios and the um, risk-adjusted performance? Now, risk in itself is a slippery concept. What do we mean by risk? And we looked at several versions of risk. And in our first draft of this paper, we had three different versions of risk and different transaction costs and different portfolio sizes. And we ended up with 150 different combinations of this, which became impossible to summarize in a meaningful way. So we've cut it down a lot. And we've only got a, two dimensions of risk in this case and uh, only one portfolio size. Because in a concentrated market like South Africa, size of the portfolio does matter. I mean, for my portfolio manager at Momentum, it matters very much whether he's designed a strategy that can house 10 billion rands or 10 million rands. The range of investment opportunities that you can access when you're dealing with a 10 million rand portfolio is very different to that of a, a 10 billion rand portfolio. So the liquidity of the market matters. So you need to adjust for that as well. So we looked at all of these different dimensions in the study to try and understand, you know, can you have too much of a free lunch? Can you over-diversify your portfolios? Is there a positive relationship between the level of diversification and the level of risk-adjusted performance? We kind of assume that there is, but um, is it in fact true? And if so, does more diversification mean better uh, risk-adjusted performance? Okay, so that's, that's the research question. And these, this, the slides, and apologies for all the text. It's, uh, it's bad habits. I'm trying to become more sort of multimedia. Graham, you've got to <laughs> head up on me. I haven't quite got the music and singing dancing yet, but anyway. But this just captures what we did. We looked at four different investment theses. We looked at four alternative investment strategies. Alternative meaning non-market cap weighted. And the simplest is the equally weighted. We looked at minimum volatility, which is your traditional modern portfolio theory, the Markowitz kind of efficient frontier type of stuff. Uh, equal risk contribution and maximum diversification ratios I'll talk to you in a little bit later. But these are the more sophisticated, trying to maximize the amount of diversification in the portfolio, given some assumptions around the relationships, the interrelationships between those portfolios. Okay, so these are kind of the sexy things, and the question is really, is it worthwhile? I mean, equally weighted is naive, but it's surprisingly robust, and that's what we'll come back to. Okay, so we looked at it for a period of 1995 to 2015, so it was 20-odd years. We were busy updating that. And uh, we've rebalanced monthly. So every month we rebalance back to that ideal portfolio. That involves trading, and so we've captured the cost of that at a 50 bit per leg of the trade, a buy-sell. It's pretty onerous with regards to transaction costs, but uh, there are market impact effects in the South African market which are impossible to estimate accurately, and so we've been overly conservative in that, in that, in that way. Um, I had one manager come to present on their topic, and uh, they had no adjustment, no adjustment costs for transactions. And that, that for me is just, just a big problem. So rather be overly conservative with this than, than maybe try and get too to, to specific. And we adjusted for liquidity. Because as I said, the size of your portfolio matters. And what you might find in a small, with a small portfolio in a very big range, you may not be able to achieve if you become constrained. So we adjusted it for that. We use an average size portfolio of 100 million, so just an illustration. We ran this for different sizes as well. Okay, so as I said, everything that I'm going to report here is relative to the market cap. So we look at the levels of diversification relative to the market cap. We measure it in different ways, but uh, we, we report it all relative. Similarly, the risk-adjusted performance, we take the market cap risk-adjusted performance and the, and the portfolio returns, or their risk-adjusted returns. 
we look at the level of diversification in two ways. So it's something called the diversification score, which I'll, I'll explain a bit further. But essentially, that looks at the extent to which from a... Uh, traditional volatility measure of risk, the extent to which the, the risk of the portfolios, um, the risk of the portfolio is reduced by the, the combination of the shares versus the weighted sum of the individual vol shares volatilities. So it's a ratio. And uh, we look at the ratio of the ratio. It's the ratio of the new investment diversification strategy relative to the market cap. So to get a sense of relative to the market cap, how diversified is the portfolio, we give it a score. But to check that, because that's really dependent on that variance measure or that volatility measure of risk, we looked at another measure called um, the concentration score. And what we did there was use something called the Hirschman-Hirfendahl Hirsch, Index, which is a measure of concentration. It takes the squared weights of the portfolio. It's used in the Gini coefficient for income distribution. And we take the inverse of that, so a higher score is a more diversified portfolio. And there, the equally weighted portfolios are obviously the most diversified because the weights are spread equally across. But as you move away from that equally weighting, the, the concentration score will measure the extent to which you are more concentrated. Okay, and uh, to check the performance, we took two measures. One is a traditional measure, which is the information ratio, which looks at the performance of the portfolio relative to the benchmark portfolio, in this case, the market cap. So it looks at the active return relative to the market cap divided by the tracking error, the standard deviation of that active return. And uh, there's the mega sharp ratio. Now, the mega sharp ratio is something that you probably are not... Uh, uh, haven't been exposed to. The Amiga ratio is a, a, a different measure of risk to the volatility. We wanted to check whether or not the results would be sensitive to the type of risk or the measure of risk that we use. And the Amiga ratio looks at the distribution of returns and there's some reference return, either a benchmark or zero or a risk-free rate. We use a risk-free rate here. And it looks at the shape under that distribution above the reference rate relative to the area under the distribution below it. So it's a ratio of the distribution relative to some reference point. And obviously, the extent to which the distribution is skewed to the right of your reference point, you'll have a better score and a lower risk because you've got a better probability of achieving that outcome. So that fits in very nicely, and we just use that Amiga ratio to turn it into a sharp version where you have a return relative to your risk-free rate divided by your Amiga ratio ref with reference to the risk-free rate. So it's another measure of a risk-adjusted return that's not dependent on volatility. So, yeah, so we're trying to answer this question, and this is kind of a big difference between academic research and um, practical research. Practical research, you've got to come up with something that's going to work and is hopefully robust, not too sensitive to estimation errors, whereas in academia, you've got a different problem. You're trying to answer the question as generally as possible, and as thoroughly as possible. So, Okay, so um, we, we then looked at the performance of these portfolios of the different diversification strategies and said, well, over the entire period, on average, did it get a higher level of diversification, and did it actually lead to a higher level of adjusted, risk-adjusted returns? So that was kind of on the one measure, just over the entire period. But that didn't answer really whether or not the level of diversification affects the level of risk-adjusted returns. That's kind of what we're really interested in. And so what we did was we took three-year rolling periods, and we looked at the relative risk-adjusted return and level of diversification. And we plotted those in a user regression as to see whether or not we could see if there's a positive linear relationship, or more interestingly, whether or not there's a negative quadratic relationship, which would suggest that as the level of diversification increases, you get initial benefits, but then decreasing benefits, or a decrease uh, in terms of risk-adjusted performance. So is there any evidence of over-diversification, or is it just a straight line up, in which case you try and maximize your diversification? 
So that's, that's where we are. Now, what are, what are the investment theses? This is just a quick reference to, to, to the literature. We looked at value, and we used these different dimensions. I mean, we didn't, we're not making any contribution in this paper to new measures of value or anything. We just took the bog standard, everybody's accepted, supported by the academic evidence. So things like book-to-value, to-market-value, earnings-to-price, cash-flow-to-price, dividend yield. These are all very well, well established, so nothing new there. Similarly, with momentum, we took a very simplistic version of momentum. It's just 12-month historical price momentum. So if you did well over the last 12 months, then you rank highly. Okay. In terms of size, we took the market capitalization just as a, a proxy. Well, I mean, that is what the size is. Again, we didn't adjust it for free float, so it's not a, a swix in that sense. Um, and in terms of low historical volatility, there are different flavors of low volatility smart beta products. Some try and minimize the overall portfolio volatility. Some use shares like this where you're taking simply historically low volatile shares and including them in the index. So this is, you know, there, there are different versions. We took a relatively simple version looking at the historical volatility as a, a proxy for the, um, the low volatility in the next period. Okay, now in terms of the, the diversification strategies, I've talked a little, quite a bit about it. The market cap is our benchmark. The equally weighted is simply 1 over n, n number of shares divided by equally weighted, so that's pretty easy. Minimum volatility, you look at the overall portfolio volatility and you just minimize that, so it's obviously dependent on your variance covariance matrix, which in this case is historical 12-month, so in the rolling periods it would adjust. Okay, so that's, that's pretty straightforward. These are the two kind of newish ones, and this paper, Richard and Roncalli in 2015, sort of tested, sort of did a horse race between these different diversification measures. They didn't apply it to the smart beta products the way we did, but uh, these were the, 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 the contributions that they made or that they were testing. Equal risk contribution, it said, well, what marginal contribution to portfolio volatility does each share take? And its overall contribution then is its weight times its marginal contribution. And so you'd, you'd optimize your portfolio weights to give you the the lowest possible portfolio, or sorry, equalize those risk contributions for each of the shares in the portfolio. So the weights would adjust depending on the marginal contributions of each share to the overall uh, portfolio volatility. The most diversified portfolio approach says, well, let's look at the overall, the ratio of the weighted average of those shares, whatever the weights are, times the individual share volatilities, their risks, relative to the portfolio as a whole. And this I discussed a little bit earlier when we talked about the diversification score. So we, just, we, we, we take the diversification ratio for the portfolio, and it's really just looking at the extent to which combining those shares in that portfolio gives you a redu risk reduction. So this is the sort of, um, uh, sort of related to the minimum volatility, but it looks at the ratio of the portfolio's overall volatility relative to the weighted individual shares volatility. So it captures that covariance effects in terms of the overall share performance. So these are the different risk measures. Obviously, these are more complicated and more difficult to estimate, and therefore are open to more model error type problems, and uh, also would lead to higher levels of turnover because the extent to which your covariance matrix changes, your, your turnover will be higher. Okay, so the way, as I've spoken already, we, we evaluate the relative diversification. We say, well, we've got market cap portfolio, we've got alternative diversification portfolio, same signal, just constructed differently. How much additional diversification does the strategy employ or add? And we take the diversification scores, the diversification ratio of the, the strategy that we're testing relative to that of the market cap. So it just gives you a relative. So if the market cap is one, this will give you a score either greater or less than one, and we subtract one just to normalize it to zero. 
And similarly, on the concentrations coefficient score, we take the uh, Herfindahl-Hirschman index and uh, do that for, we take the inverse of that and do that for both the strategy and the market cap and do the ratio again. So everything that you're going to see now is a relative diversification, relative risk-adjusted performance. Okay, the information ratio I've spoken to, the Amiga ratio we've spoken to. All right, so let's get on to kind of what did we find. Well, there are some hopefully pretty pictures. Okay, so here what we've got then is each of the different uh, um, investment strategies, the smart beaters, the different investment theses, and we've got our four different alternative um, diversification strategies here. The height of these, uh, of these uh, bar columns are, reflects the relative uh, risk-adjusted, sorry, the relative diversification score and the concentration score. So this is the relative levels of diversification for these different strategies. And you can see they're all positive, which suggests that the strategies relative to the market cap do enhance the levels of diversification. So yes, they are more diversified portfolios. Not surprising, it's kind of the point. And we know market caps are particularly bad at a diversification, a bit random in terms of diversification. So what's interesting then is the extent to which, okay, the most diversified portfolio will have the highest diversification score because it's constructed on that basis. Similarly, the equally weighted uh, strategy would do best in the concentration score space because it's equally weighted. It's the, the lowest level of concentration inside the portfolio. But uh, the strategies here show that momentum was the one most affected in terms of the levels of diversification. So um, that market cap seems to give you a very undiversified momentum uh, stock. Now that we've sort of, we, we haven't explored it properly, but I'm almost certain it's got to do with the concentrated nature of the South African market and the extent to which large caps have run or are running hard. The, um, the, port, the market cap portfolio would be very strongly weighted to those. And by enforcing a diversification strategy, you're taking that, mark, that large cap kind of bias out of it. Um, yeah, you can see size here has the lowest impact in terms of the strategies, which is not surprising given that size, you automatically in the smaller part, which are far less uh, different in terms of far less um, skewed in terms of that, 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 uh, the, the, the market cap portfolio. They're far more equally weighted and therefore the additional value of the uh, uh, diversification strategies is lowest. Okay, so that's, uh, we, we, we're pretty sure that there is an increase in diversification, which again is, as I said, not surprising. But what about the risk-adjusted returns? What we did is we looked at calendar years. So we've got 20 calendar years, all independent. We looked at the risk-adjusted returns in terms of the information ratios and the uh, sharp amiga ratios. And we plotted again, uh, these are all relative, remember, to the benchmark for that same period. So again, we see that they're mostly positive, or the fact they're all positive. The uh, low volatility portfolio didn't see a huge increase in risk-adjusted returns on average, or the median return for this particular period, which again is not, 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 not too surprising given that that is a very low-risk portfolio already by virtue of its, its construction. It's taking very low um, volatile shares into its, into its... Size had a biggest impact in terms of, of risk-adjusted performance, which was slightly surprising from our perspective. Okay. Question is, are, there, is there, are these results statistically significant? You've got 20 data points here, and um, what we're reporting here is the p-values. So this is whether or not the probability that the, the null hypothesis can be rejected is, uh, or is wrong is, is, is low. So everything under 5% generally is what, what you'd look at. But we've only got 20 data points here. We had to use this p, the sign test because all of the normal t-tests are thrown out. The, the distribution of these differences is very non-symmetric, it's very skewed, and so we couldn't use a normal parametric t-test to do it, so we had to use the sign test. 
Problems with scientists have got very low power. You need lots of observations to make it work well. We only had 20 observations. So you get a very kind of blocky outcome. It's either in or it's out. Anyway, the point is that uh, the, the, the impact from the diversification, um, the diversification ratios, um, uh, sorry, this is the performance now, the size factor didn't have, a, sorry, did have a very big difference. And that's not surprising given it's the, the highest impact. It's almost double the levels of risk-adjusted performance. But the other factors didn't seem to show a, an important difference in terms of, uh, or a significant, statistically significant difference in terms of performance. Okay, and this is something that we're going to see later on as well when we start looking at the, the ratio analysis, or at least the regression analysis. Um, the, pack, the picture is pretty messy. It's not a clear slam dunk, one win, one lose, or that you see this linear progression between the levels of diversification and uh, the... Um, and the impact on risk-adjusted performance. It's not, it's not obvious that the higher the levels of, 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 of diversification, the better from a risk-adjusted performance. Okay, so, and also the other fact is that it does seem to matter by the factor and not by the type of diversification strategy that, that, that was used. So um, in terms of the risk-adjusted value, there was a definitely a significant difference in terms of performance. Size there was. Uh, and that's true for whether you measure performance in terms of your risk information ratio with volatility as the risk or the sharp omega ratio with the sharp ratio, at least the omega ratio as your, your measure of risk. So those results are pretty robust then depending on, on what, what you look at. Um, this was far more interesting. What we did here was then, as I said, plot each of these dots reflects the returns for a rolling three-year period. Okay, and we've I've put them all together here just to give the overall pack picture, which is what we looked at. But uh, what, what this represents here is your diversification score. So this is your level of diversification inside the portfolio. And here's your information ratio and your uh, omega sharp ratio. Remember these again relative. So this is all relative to your benchmark. So did it outperform the benchmark? Was it more diversified than the benchmark? Okay, so we can see here that there's a huge spread of or variation of risk-adjusted performance that's not really well explained by the level of, risk of, of diversification. In fact, in this particular case, you do get a significant fit for the quadratic equation, which suggests that for momentum anyway, as a factor, you can over-diversify. Okay? Now, this is the clearest and the best relationship we got for these. There is some sign of a positive relationship. But uh, from an adjusted R-squared perspective, it's a very poor fit. It does not explain a lot of the variation in risk-adjusted returns. So there are other factors driving it, not, not related to the level of diversification. So, but yes, in terms of momentum, it seems there is a statistically significant positive uh, um, relationship. So more diversification on average is better. But it does seem that you can have too much diversification. Well, another interpretation is that... Uh, this is your diversification score, so that's your most diversified portfolio. That type of diversification does not help. Your equally weighted are all around here. They're the ones that have the least impact on diversification in terms of this measure, relative diversification. But in fact, they give you a far better level or at least a range of risk-adjusted scores compared to your more sophisticated measures. Okay, so that's, uh, that's, uh, that's the, this is just the results there. They're the p-values, they're the coefficients. There's a positive coefficient on your linear, which means your line's going up. The quadratic coefficient is negative, which means you've got a concave version. Uh, but look at the adjusted R-squares. They're very, very low. 
I mean, obviously, there's a lot else driving this other than diversification. So, okay, but this is as good as it gets. From here on, it's just ugly, as you can see here. Here we get the opposite. Well, from a, diverse, from a, a quadratic uh, perspective, we have some evidence of a, of a linear equation here, and this is looking at value. But there's a huge amount of variation in risk-adjusted returns. And in fact, these are all your equally weighted. I should have put different colored dots to reflect the different strategies. But those are your equally weighted strategies. So your additional increase in diversification is not that great. But in terms of the impact on your risk-adjusted performance, equally weighting works extremely well. Is it all that fancy stuff worth it? Not obvious, not in this context anyway. And if we go back to the momentum, it's pretty certain not, not going to help in the context of South Africa anyway, over this period. Okay, so that's value. We're looking at sort of, you know, with more diversification, you're getting a, a, a sort of initially worse and then a better effect. So kind of counter what we expected. But, I mean, look at these R squares for this. This is value. Positive, positive, positive. Pretty significant. Um, not so much there if we looked at the diversification, the sharp omega ratio. But, I mean, the adjusted R squares are, yeah, poor, very, very poor. So not very convincing. Low volatility, um, much smaller range. I didn't put these on the same graph, but at least the same axes, but this is a much smaller range. Here we get the wrong shape in terms of what we'd expect, but, uh, or I mean, it is what it is, not what we expected. Positive relationship, yes. There is some positive effects to, um, to the coefficients, larger and significant. The adjusted R squares are not great. Quadratic, not well estimated here. Okay, when it gets to size, you know, it's pretty flat. We're getting sort of groupings. Clearly, the diversification strategies are working inside its own kind of silo. It uh, doesn't vary that impact on diversification. doesn't vary a lot. Uh, and you get in this range there. So, um, yeah, the answers are, again, not particularly persuasive for any particular arrangement. Yeah, our squares are terrible. So, just to wrap it up then, you know, it doesn't matter. Can you have too much of a free lunch? Well... It's not clear that you can or can't. The, the, the more sophisticated your diversification strategies, the better the levels of diversification. But it doesn't translate in a linear fashion to enhanced levels of risk-adjusted performance. You get a surprisingly good result from a relatively naive investment, uh, investment diversification strategy, shall I say, uh, which is your equally weighted strategy. So coming back to the kind of portfolio design that my portfolio manager originally proposed, which was equally weighted. Luckily for him and for me, <laughs> the research actually uh, uh, supported that. Uh, this does raise some questions, though, as to why you get a particular relationship inside momentum and not in the other factors. I, um, that's, that's another piece of work that we're working on now, looking at the nature of the momentum factor and the shares returns that make up this particular factor versus, say, value quality or low volatility, where they are more stable. We know that momentum shares change a lot, and uh, they change rapidly. So uh, it suggests in that context there is some value to, to diversification, but again, you can over-diversify. Okay, guys, well, thank you for your time. Hildegard, I hope that uh, filled your need for uh, some uh, rigorous uh, academic research. I hope it's relevant to everybody, and, uh, yeah, happy to take questions. I'm not sure of timing. Are we good? Yeah, we're good for a couple more minutes. Evan, are there any questions for our uh, professor? Just on that, the paper is available, so if anyone wants a copy, you can have it. So, yeah. yeah. Yes. Anyone else other than David? Come on, Dave. <laughs> Dave's good one. Let's take one at the back and then. Uh... Yeah, just uh, maybe your gut feel, or if you've done any work on 
how applicable this these results would be in in, in the global market in the US, US market for example in other words do you think yeah. these are SA specific results because of the unique characteristics of our market or do you think it's more it's, it might be more might have more general application I it's, it's an empirical question and um, I I'd be very interested to find out Edri because um, it's the South African market is quite different. I mean, we've got a very skewed, very concentrated market. And so using the market cap as a benchmark can, it will certainly be different elsewhere, where you've got a much smaller impact in terms of the large caps on it. And so that variation will be different. So it's, could, you could well find a very different relationship or outcome there. However, we're living in this market and we have to make investment decisions and then design smart beta products for this market. So yeah, I, I do think this has some relevance there. I can't say, Edrithata, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if the results are different, given that that benchmark, which is the reference point for all of this, is very different there than it is here. Yeah. I, I thought the frictional cost assumption was very high. It is. You, you did yes. give some context. But Me too. Yeah. That would imply that the four strategies, the ones that had much higher turnover, yeah. would be biased against. Yeah, yeah. What is the turnover ranking? We don't report that. We should. Thank you. It's a very good point. I actually must report that. I, I haven't tracked it. Uh, I know that um, the, uh, the okay, quality we're not reporting, low volatility is much lower. Uh, the uh, size is much lower. The momentum and the value actually are the highest in terms of the trade-offs. Uh, if, if I remember correctly, the momentum is the highest and this is based on some work that I've done sort of inside the momentum space, not this space. But on that case, you're looking at between an annual turnover of 70 to 80% of your portfolio. So the costs, the drag is, is very large in that context. Um, values in the order of 50, 40 to 50%, so still high. Uh, we, we do a quality uh, version of this, which I didn't include in the study, and there it's between 10 and 15% of the portfolio. Because value companies don't change their spots, so you've got a much more stable uh, component set. So yes, uh, they, that, the drag, the returns here are, is after that particular. I mean, it's, you, you can argue that 50 bips per each leg is very high, and it is, but um, it's very hard to come up with something else uh, more accurate uh, given the market impacts on us on our, in our particular. That's the real part of the transaction cost. I mean, the trading costs are small, but it's the market impact that, that is real, and it's size affected, so it depends on what size your portfolios are. So it's hard to, so this is a very rough proxy, but we'd rather err on the, on the conservative side there, what we have heard. I know it's a lot of work, but maybe do it with zero frictional costs and then compare it to Exactly, that's a, uh, that's a very nice tweak, thank you. We should do that, yeah, just to check that effect. Great, any other questions? Brilliant, then Evan, Great. thank you very much. It, uh, would appear that uh, most of them are awake, which is good news. So. Yeah, <laughs> equalised diversification saves the day. Thank you, Thank you very much. Uh, a special gift for you. There's Voltaren Emil Gel in there. There is some Brufen and some Cramp Block. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you give Evan a round of applause? Thank you, Thank you so much.